Because no race has the last word on culture and on civilization. They do not know what we are capable of. They do not know what we are thinking. They are thinking in terms of dreadnoughts, battleships, aeroplanes, submarines. You know what we are thinking about? That is our own private business. You are listening to The Brown CEO. You are listening to The Brown CEO. I'm your host, Selma Idris. Follow the conversation every week as I speak to some of the dopest minds from around the planet about what's broken and how we're going to fix it. This is The Conversation Between Us, every Tuesday. Yalla, let's go. Hello and welcome to Episode 5, Part 2 of The Brown CEO. I'm your host, Selma Idris. This episode, we continue where we left off in our conversation about conditioning with historian and professor Dr. John Johnson. Listen in as our Q&A, turned history lesson, takes us all back to school. Here's Dr. John Johnson. In my own study, I look at the history of Newark, and while people say Newark blew up in 1967, the decline of the city actually started in the 1920s. It's important to look at that because the same things that happened in Newark in the 1920s are actually, we see them happening all across our country now. You know, private industry, capitalists, if we want to call them that, were basically taking tax dollars or shifting public policy to benefit themselves and not the larger constituencies of the city. Um, We're seeing that now. And it's important that we, if I sound redundant, we have to invest in people. We're not doing that enough. I wanted to talk about Newark for a second because you were the executive director of the Newark 350, um, the celebration, and that was Newark's Newark, the city of Newark, turning 350 years old. Yes, um, and it was a year-long jubilee. I had the privilege of of coming and attending a couple of the events, um, and I want you to talk. Newark is important as a diaspora capital, and we often talk about the diaspora capitals, whether it be Nairobi. You're talking about Joburg, we're talking about Dakar, we're talking about New Orleans, we're talking about Newark, Detroit, so on. Where our people are, where we have built communities, where our communities still exist, um, where they've never disappeared, um, and where we should be looking to support and rebuild. Um, So I do want to talk about Newark for a second. And because we know so little about our history, and because we have the opportunity of having you here, um, we always hear New Jersey. We hear Newark, New Jersey, and I don't think we really know anything about Newark. Mm. So, so can you give us kind of like, just like a, a brief history of like the significance of Newark to like African American history? Mm. Wow. Well, let me let me take the Amistad Commission approach. Um, it's Newark is important to Black folks, to be sure. But it's also important, I think, to the country writ large. Um, as a city, it's nestled in between New York and Philly. And so just as a part of that Northeast corridor, it's a major transportation hub, which means if you're going north, you got to pass through Newark somehow or another. Uh, my advisor, um, uh, Clement Alexander Price, who passed away a few years ago, um, he said all roads lead to Newark. And... Um, for a number of African-Americans, all roads did lead to Newark. Um, the joke is, is that folks were on their way to Harlem. Uh, the 
train uh, conductor said Newark and somebody heard New York and got off and they got stuck in Newark. (laughs) Uh, Not true, I'm assuming, but um, uh, it was a major manufacturing hub and and that's what drew a lot of African-Americans to the city uh, just before American got involved in World War II and even afterwards. Uh, Major manufacturing, good, good wages, moved to Newark. Um, but it was a very old city at the same time, uh, third oldest major city in the country. Um, say major city, not third yeah. oldest city, but third oldest major city in terms of a metropolitan area, right? And so um, it had a lot of good things going for it. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on its downfall, but what I will say is that uh, it wasn't because African Americans arrived in Newark that it went into decline, but it was, again, because individuals were... Who was it first? Was it, like, Italians or something? Like, that's uh, the feel you get from Newark now, but, yeah, I don't know. Like... Um, well, see, if you go back to colonial times, it was the... Uh, <laughs> they were... Um, uh, Dutch? Initially the Dutch, the uh, but what settled, who settled Newark were Englishmen. Ah. Um, uh, originally from Connecticut. Um, and... Um, in terms of Newark's more modern or current history, um, the earliest settlers were Germans and then the Irish. Kind of followed the pattern of most other cities. Do you um, know what natives they displaced? This is so random. Lenin Lenape. Lenin Lenape. And this was back in 1667 or 1668 uh, when um, uh, the settlers um, uh, had a meeting with the Lenin Lenape and kind of like what we saw in New York with the signing over of the island of Manhattan for, like for a dollar here for like some little things here and there. Uh, there was the exchange of the title of land for, I think there were a few um, uh, weapons, some trinkets, barrels of uh, rum or something along those lines. It wasn't rum, yeah. sorry, because they were, um, uh, they didn't believe in drinking at the time. So, <laughs> um, Newark for African-Americans was significant in that in the old Third Ward community, which was an old ghetto, uh, originally was a Jewish ghetto. Uh, the old Eastern European Jews with their push carts, felt to fish and candy shops and shoe shops and all of that, all of those things were in the old Third Ward. Mm. And as African-Americans moved in greater numbers, some of the Jewish merchants said, you know what, we need to do things to cater to this new population of people. And so they began to sell collard greens and pig feet and all the things that Southern black folks were buying when they moved to the North. And in those spaces, you see the development of these speakeasies, these bars. Um, colleague in Newark, um, uh, Lord forgive me, I'm, I can't recall her name right now, uh, but she wrote this book called Swing Life in Newark, which talks about all of the various clubs that were in Newark. And at that time, if you were a prominent jazz singer or artist, musician, um, you had to stop in Newark, cut your teeth, and then go to Harlem, right? Or go to the village and play there. And so in a lot of ways, Newark was kind of the stop that people went on just before they went and, you know, uh, you know really cultivated their art in, in, in New York City. Um, Newark was also a migrant city, and as such, it reflected the cultures of the people. One thing that people forget is that Newark was the home of Savoy Records, um, and particularly the gospel branch of Savoy Records. And so um, if you ever listen to like gospel music now, and you have the live recording where you know people, it seems like people in church, mm-hmm. the first one was actually done by a Newark-born artist, Reverend Lawrence Roberts. 
and it was his choir, the Angelic Choir of, uh, interestingly enough, Angelic Choir of Nutley, New Jersey, which was a small suburban town just outside of Newark. Mm -hmm. uh, the church was located there, but majority of the parishioners were from I'm Newark. And, or they were born in the South, moved to Newark. And so they brought that, you know, Southern church, that down-home Baptist church feeling to the city. And so Newark, as a, as a diasporic uh, node in the larger diaspora, its unique contribution is this uh, soulful Southern Baptist musical tradition. Mm. Um, and it's part of the gospel music tradition. And so Whitney Houston was a part of that. Yeah. Um, people, you know, her chops were cultivated in the church, mm. right? Um, and she brought that to the world. It was streamlined a little bit and made and polished. But if you listen to her career over time, she she gets back to it. We kind of we hear a lot of it in the Preacher's Wife soundtrack where, I mean, she's singing gospel songs and she's mm -hmm. shouting and she's doing the wails that we hear in the church. And all of that comes from that tradition in, in Newark. What's peculiar about that, though, uh, you said short and I can never, historians can't do anything short or briefly. Uh, but um, what's peculiar is, though, and, and we see this in a lot of big cities, you have the old guard black community that's been there for at least a generation or two. Uh, invariably they become assimilated, they become part of larger society. And so in peculiar ways, they tend to eschew the, or they, they want to hold at arm's length the, the recent immigrants, the recent migrants, mm -hmm. uh, because of their backwater and down-home ways. Um, but it's, it's like water, you can't stop those things. And so as people are moving from the South and moving into the city, the culture that becomes more popular and kind of catches on in these speakeasies and in these bars, eventually the clubs and that, you know, was eventually put on wax in a Savoy Records came from the South. Um, to be sure, it reflected the nuances of the city. And so if you listen to some of the records of the first Baptist, of uh, Reverend Lawrence Roberts and the Angelic Choir, you will hear him talking about when I'm walking down Broad Street in Newark and talking to myself, people think I'm crazy, but I'm praying. And... I mean, and, and, you know, these records sold nationally and they did well. I mean, I don't know how many gold records he has, yeah. but folks across the country heard something and recognized it as, as essential to who they were. Um, if I can add one other thing, um, gospel music is a major, uh, was cultivated in Newark, but house music is too. And when people yeah, think of the New Jersey sound, when they think of the New Jersey, you have to go to Newark. Um, there was a world-famous club, Club Zanzibar, which uh, oddly enough emerged as this uh, space that was really catered towards the, the gay community. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a club, or really a loft club called La Jacques uh, that was kind of the primary party spot in Newark in the early 70s. But the party promoters, the cultivators of that space, uh, they were the ones that were hired by a hotel owner to uh, refashion this club that he had in his hotel. It was originally called Abe's and Abe's Bar. And these guys transformed Abe's to Zanzibar. Mm -hmm. And they added all these like uh, cheetah or leopard print things all over the place. They had a caged leopard. And I mean, they just brought they this just new- tens and eat it up. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they added this whole funky style to Love this it. spot in the red light district of Newark. And you had people just flocking there, homosexuals, heterosexuals, and everything in between, and outside of it even going there to have a good time. And there was a particular sound that was cultivated there. Lord, forgive me. I don't know why I'm forgetting the guy's name. 
Uh, but he was one of the primary DJs who, rather than just playing disco, mm-hmm. played soul music. Mm-hmm. He brought in some gospel cuts. It was a, a choir from uh, Brooklyn, as a matter of fact. Uh, stand on the word, the word of God. That was one of the songs that they played in Zanzibar. And so in this place where people were invariably sniffing coke or doing something, you know, dancing the gospel music. Mm-hmm. And so in these interesting ways, you see the the blending of all of these musical traditions in this one spot, and people sweated it out. And that really became the basis of the 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 Newark sound and the New Jersey sound. Uh, part vocal, you know, house music has, uh, what is it, 120 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. And so invariably it would be set to like a high tempo beat. But New Jersey house music is very soulful. A lot of singers... And they just bring this thing to you that elevates you. It's almost people say it's going to church, yeah. and, and and that's one of the other things that uh, culturally we see coming out of Newark. Beautiful. Now I don't want to spend much time on it either, but we know what Newark is known for now, and it's you know it's the highest insurance car insurance rate because that's where you get carjacked, mm. and that's where crime is, and so on. And yes, Newark is 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 in the middle of uh whatever Renaissance they call it. I don't know. I'm always very careful when I speak about those things because they talk about my neighborhood being in a renaissance, but they just mean gentrification. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily getting better. Mm-hmm. You know, we're losing some beautiful things that the reasons I moved into my neighborhood no no longer exist. Mm-hmm. So what did happen to Newark? Uh, Why? Like if you say it's not the, it's not the folks coming up from the South. Um, it's not us moving in. Mm-hmm. What happened to Newark? I'll use a, a term that Manning Marable um, uses when he talks about uh, the black experience in America. We see underdevelopment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, like I, I noted before, uh, starting in the 20s, there was this uh, desire by the powers that be, politicians, businessmen, to do significant investment in the downtown central business district. Um and so, and this happened at the same time, some of the Newark neighborhoods, the outer lying neighborhoods were being, were developing, like the Weequake section, Ivy Hill. These were solidly middle-class communities. In some case, you had a lot of wealthy individuals there as well. Um, but over, as we move through the 20th century, more and more people are moving to the suburbs because it's incentivized. At the same time, we see the redevelopment of the city, urban renewal, which we see significant investments in the core of the city, in the central business district, but very little investment in the residential areas. Uh, We also see the cordoning off of black folks in uh, what the historian Arnold Hirsch calls the second ghetto, where you tear down the old, you know, five-story flat, cold water flat, and you build a high-rise public housing on top of it. But we don't see any investments in that. We, we have them built, people move in. The first iter- the first generation of folks that are living in there, they loved it. And to be sure, even when it went in its downcline, when it, even when it went into decline, a lot of folks say, I still love that community because I knew the folks there, they knew me, and we loved each other, we took care of each other. But we see the decline in public housing because of underdevelopment. And so um, when you underdevelop schools, when you don't make significant investments in schools, uh, and this was happening for majority black schools in Newark going back to the 1930s and 40s. The outerlying schools that were predominantly Italian and Jewish, they received, they, they got a lot of funding. They also had good school leadership, which mm-hmm. in the Weequake section, I think, uh, was one of the highest ranked schools in the country in the 1950s and 60s. That's, by, that's not by accident. 
because there was investments in the schools and they had school leadership to cultivate that curriculum, which allowed for that. And so the Philip Ross, the Benildi Littles, uh, these New York Times bestselling author, Alvin Adels, who was an executive for the Golden State Warriors, all graduated from Weequake High School during that time. Um, and interestingly enough, now there's an organization, the Weequake High School Alumni Association, which uh, raises money for scholarships. So Weequake students there now can travel to Paris and get exposure to the world, but also uh, to the larger world, but also uh, book scholarships. So they don't, you know, they, they have some money going into college. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer your question, underdevelopment is what happens in Newark. And so we're, you know, crime isn't just something that people do for fun. Crimes of wanting. And and as much as individuals say that there's a culture of crime, there's a pathology that exists in Newark, all of that arises from want. Mm -hmm. Um, To be sure, there were Jewish gangsters in the 1920s and 30s, 40s. There were Italian gangsters, and they were doing some of the same things the Bloods and the Crips were doing. They had public shootings in public places doing horrible things to each other. Uh, Innocent victims were getting caught up in it. Uh, (laughs) Organized crime is not new to Newark, right? At the same time, we have to keep in mind that there were everyday people that weren't involved in those things who lived in the city. And what's peculiar is that when people that used to live in the city reflect back Oh, it was great in Newark back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had the downtown shopping district, and you had Hanes, and you had Bamberger's, you know, these big uh, box, not box stores, but um, it was like Macy's, these humongous uh, retail stores and outlets. Great places, and the Newark Museum and everything was wonderful about Newark, but they forget the Boyardo crime family. They forget Longies Willman, uh, these gangsters who were doing some horrible things, and some invariably, Zwillman was a peculiar character. I can't just classify him as a hardcore gangster. He took care of Jews in Newark. When the Nazis came to Newark, when they tried to plant a, a seed in Newark uh, with the, the Bund, which was their American wing of their party, mm-hmm. it was Longies Willman's thugs that went out there and ran them out of the city that went up to Irvington and threw down with them to run them out of out of here. We're not going to tolerate that here in the U.S., right? And so I can't classify as well. I can't, like, just, you know, blanket yeah. cast a woman as this bad person. But um, nonetheless, he was a crime boss. Yeah. So I guess one of my major questions is I've always been really interested in the history of how corporations got to be as powerful as they are, especially in America. And there's like a lot of things, a lot of pieces of legislation that happened, especially like, you know, turn of the century and even in the, in the 40s and 50s that really where it where corporations got to have the same legal rights as human beings. And I think that's the big thing that's really, really given corporations the power that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, my question to you is, as a historian, do you think that that will be included in future history books, the influence of corporations? Yeah, I think the 14th Amendment is the, the, the key piece here, right? Um, and I can't remember the exact year, um, it occurred, um, but we know 14th Amendment is guaranteed citizenship rights, right? Um, and when you think about the larger history of it, like the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment came at a particular point in history. Mm. The emancipation of African Americans, African peoples, and it was the push to give them legal rights in the U.S. to incorporate them into the citizenry. 13th Amendment, 
abolishes slavery. 14th Amendment guarantees rights. 15th Amendment, right to vote. Somewhere, and I want to say it's the late 19th century, probably early 20th century, there was a case that occurred, and I can't remember the exact legal case, but in the end, the corporation was recognized as a person through the 14th Amendment in that it gave corporations citizenship rights mm-hmm. um, and, and ways put them on par with everyday human beings. Every and Corporations, they don't represent people, they represent capital, right? Mm-hmm. They, the corporations really are just kind of these abstract bodies that house capital. And they have their missions and all those other things that give them shape. But when all is said and done, they are there to protect capital. And so, hell, corporation does something wrong, you sue the corporation, not the individuals that run it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I'm thinking about it now, one of the textbooks that I use does not touch upon that. Right. It does, and not in any extensive way in, in, in talking about um, the import of that, mm. right? that you're giving corporations uh, legal standing with individual rights, even though in a lot of ways corporations violate individual rights. And, you know, we can talk a whole host, you know, talk about those those examples. But um, I, I think that's. That's missing from the current discussion. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about the flow of corporate money into campaigns and those kinds of things, but we really don't get to the crux of it, which was the recognition that they received. And I think that, I mean, that's a question that I'm going to have to pose yeah. uh, to my students. Is like, so how are we going to resolve this in the future? Um, that's a, that's a, that's going to drive me to now look for sources now when I teach it because thank you for raising it. It was one of the things I didn't even think about, but I think it when it comes to kind when it comes to uh, addressing any number of issues and the opioid uh, uh, opioid crisis is one of the things that comes mm-hmm. to mind. Yeah, um, we really need to get to that that core issue is that we need to hold individuals within those corporations accountable. The corporations can no longer be the shields that provide that. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's a whole lot of litigation and just, that's that's gonna be a legal mess in and of itself. But I think, I'm, I'm trying to think of some kind of, some something historically that gets to that question. And for the life of me, I'm not thinking of anything right now. Yeah, because I think that's the linchpin in a lot of the you know, the power that corporations have. I mean, there's a lots of legislation to knock down the power of corporations, but without that being changed, I don't really see, mm-hmm. you know, all of the other issues that have kind of been spawned from that changing. And it's funny, I, I, I was like, I can't remember, I can't remember the name of the legislation. I know what you're talking about. Like, I can't remember the name of the legislation or exactly when it happened, but it also makes me wonder, because I know that there are some pieces of legislation that, don't necessarily feel landmark during their time. Like they're not, because like sometimes they're wrapped in a bigger piece of legislation, you know, Mm. it's some this little small thing that that got changed that wasn't really even a big deal to the people who were writing that legislation at that time. But Mm -hmm. it really gave the, set the precedent for all the, all the, all the changes that happened. So. Yeah. I mean, and I do, uh, I say this tentatively, Mm. um, I mean, so much, we look at black history, we look at American history writ large, 
like the Supreme Court is kind of like this major institution that African-Americans have to address. And so we, we looked at the road to Brown versus Board, and part of that was over the six or seven years there were court cases to systematically knock down segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, if we are really about clamping down on corporate power, we have to systematically bit by bit address any number of issues in the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and get to the point where we, and this is something I have to do on my way home or walking out of here, I'm going to have to look up what that court case was mm-hmm. that gave corporations recognition, constitutional recognition. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, to me, that's, that's just, just huge. Yeah. Uh, because even from like take it outside of a corporate level and look at it as a social level, it's a, a social and cultural thing. Like I always say that, you know, Americans are confused right now because we've let go of our religion. Like our children aren't religious. We're not treat we're not raising our children religious anymore. We're not going to churches, we're not going to temples, we're not going to mosques. We are now capitalists. And we have to say that capitalism is our religion. We believe that you go out there and you work hard and all of these morals that are are that we follow and abide by are capitalistic morals. Because if any of us went back to any of our books, we wouldn't be doing any of this, right? Down to even just how contracts are written. They've abandoned the books and that because the religions have have rules on like how you can do a contract, how much interest you should pay on a loan, how much all of that is out of the window. We are following the religion of capitalism right now. So beyond the corporate legislation, we have to convince ourselves that our humanity belongs somewhere else than in capitalism. And then we can go and fight for something because that's where you get into the, the wall is there because people are like, we're losing our jobs. We're, did it, we're so confused. It's just like, is this economic? Is this human? Is this, what is it? So I think it's a, you posed such a great question there because it's just like, yes, the fact that a corporation is now a human with more human rights than a real human under this religion of capitalism, Mm -hmm. who is the most revered son in that religion? Mm -hmm. It's the corporation, right? So it's like being a Christian and the capitalist is like the nun or the priest, it's the monk, it's the, Mm -hmm. the corporation becomes that chosen, the golden child, that chosen one. And humans are actually not serviced by this religion at all then. It's built for corporations. Let me throw something in there, too. I mean, you raise a, a, a crazy point, but it's one when I look at the history of Hebrews with my students, I bring to bear. If you look at the book of Exodus, the way they talk about loans, you should not charge interest on loans. You know, yeah. imagine if we use that as the basis of like our contracts and our bank, you know, our banking system. I mean, folks will lose their mind. But I have a, I have a very education specific question. So, like, I grew up in, you guys already know this, but I grew up in a, in a pretty nice suburb. And at the time, it actually was one of the top 100, like, public school systems. In like, New Jersey. In, in, no, in the U.S., actually. Oh, I mean, but you're from New Jersey. Because he doesn't from, know you're from yeah, New Jersey. Yeah, I'm from yeah. Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's still pretty good now, but it, then it was even greater, um, largely because there's been a decline in public schools everywhere, even yeah. in nice suburbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, my question is... Um, in terms of like the education, in terms of like the history of education in this country, um, I've always been really curious because I didn't understand this even when I was a kid, especially when I got to high school. Is you're, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with tracking. What is the his, 
what is the history of like when did tracking become a thing because for me personally it's something i never understood of like why we don't all learn i don't know what tracking is sorry so tracking is essentially and you probably to be honest with you probably experienced this a certain level so tracking is you essentially if you're a kid let's say you're in high school you can have a choice of being in regular classes advanced Mm -hmm. classes ap classes now, my mom, I'm very fortunate that she did this for me because she was just like, you're going to take all AP classes or at a minimum advanced classes because I want you to learn as much as possible. Mm-hmm. That's what she told me directly. And looking back on it, I just am like, wow, I did, I did do so much more work than some of these kids in these quote unquote lower classes. And it really set up a it sets up a, a like an intellectual class system within the within the schools because it's just like oh you're taking the regular class or oh you're taking the advanced class and not the AP class it sets up a dynamic like that but the more important thing that I realized like years and years later is like I'm so glad I took mostly all AP and all well, these AP and advanced classes because I got to learn so much more and my question is but it made me question like why in the world are we setting this standard where some kids get to learn more than others and why are some parents or even some are allowing the kids to make that decision why don't we all learn the same amount of things and let the chips fall where they may yeah i can't speak directly to the history writ large of tracking Mm -hmm. but i can refer to a few examples of where we see different kinds of tracking. And so in Weekwake High School, mm. uh, back in the 40s and 50s, they had different academic tracks, uh, not as a means of seeing where a person is going to go throughout their lifetime as much as a student can choose whether they would be on the honors track because they wanted to go college prep. Mm-hmm. They can go secretarial. And so this was invariably for women who were wanted to get a pink collar mm-hmm. job. And so they would take a set of classes and go in this particular area. And then there was um, a general track and I believe there was an industrial track for those that wanted to go into vocational mm-hmm. uh, learning. And in a society that wasn't predicated at the time on credentials, mm-hmm. I think that was a matter of choice. What did you want to do? You know, do you want to work with your hands? Do you want to uh, own your own business as a plumber, carpenter, what have you? Do you want to work in a do you want to go to college with the expectation of working in a corporate environment? Uh, do you have desire to be a secretary? And, you know, we can talk about the gendered uh, trajectory of that and how problematic or not it was. Um, but it was based on one's particular goals. Um, in Chicago in the 1920s and 30s, we have a different form of tracking. Um Catherine Neckerman wrote this book about education in Chicago, and she talks about the ways the public school system uh, tracked African-American students and the kinds of opportunities it provided them versus the ethnic white students, I believe mostly Polish students. Mm. And what we saw, somewhat similar to the week-wake model, was that the Polish students were provided um, academic tracks that were more vocational. And so those were things that they can readily use in that economy that will allow them to do well. Whereas African-Americans, and I can't remember specifically if if it was a a, a varied track, but they had their own academic track different from the Polish students in their particular schools, not to be sure. These were separate school buildings altogether. Nonetheless, they were tracked into these particular career areas. Um, 
And so I think at a certain time, these were geared more towards the kinds of jobs that individuals would have. But as we move more to a credential kind of society where one's livelihood is predicated on the kind of education that they get, it do has the more, um, I think, uh, structural, uh, the, the kind of track that kind of locks you into a particular uh, trajectory, right? And so we see this in some of our suburban schools um, where African-American students are by and large tracked into the lower tier tracks, mm-hmm. even special ed. Um, and and I'm, I'm, special ed is a, a larger discussion uh, because there's the assumption that that means bad student, but I think it just means alternative forms of learning. And I think mm-hmm. we have to we have to recognize that yeah. um, we we shouldn't classify it as something inept and bad. We have to be very careful with that. I think, um, but I think the history of tracking, especially now, it is by it is used to put people on a particular path and that has less to do with their own choice mm-hmm. and more so to do with the ways in which society views that they should go. And so if you look at certain schools, I hate to call out a certain, I won't name the institution, but they didn't have, they had very few honors offerings, but they had a, um, a hair and beauty track. Um, now, is that a bad thing? No. But I find it hard to, I don't know if every school district provides that, mm-hmm. you know, and so students are going on this track. Hopefully they will be owners of their own shop as opposed to just workers, right? People just getting their license and going into beautician schools There's nothing wrong with that. But if that is the only means or one of the major tracks in the school and there are no others, then we see something a little bit more insidious. I have a problem with the hair and beauty school. I hope they're teaching the economics of hair and beauty, how to own verticals in hair and beauty, manufacturing, shipping, pick and pack, all of it, all of it that goes along with it. If if, if that particular school's listening to that, that's what the curriculum should offer. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you know what's interesting? I want to jump in on this because one of the things that I learned in school that kind of I held on to in my brain, and this is like probably 30 years ago, I probably heard it in a classroom, was that the purpose of the public education system in America was to raise good soldiers. I can believe that. And that when we think, if you look at the early 20th century, particularly with the progressive movement, and that's really where we see, I mean, to be sure, we see investment in public schools during Reconstruction. I mean, that's one of the the beauties of the Reconstruction period is that uh, African Americans, as well as progressive whites, if we can call them progressive whites at that time, uh, wanted to see public education in the South, and so we see major investments in the 1870s. But around about the early 1900s, we begin to see major investments in public schools, partly because of the influx of immigrants mm-hmm. and the need to acculturate them to the United States and to make them more. Patriots. Better citizens, yeah. better patriots to forego their old languages to, you know, if you're coming from Italy, we don't believe in anarchy. If you're coming from Germany, keep that communism. Well, that's the oath you take when you say your citizenship. You mm-hmm. renounce citizenship to your own nation and now you are joined in America and you're ready to raise the flag for the United States of America, which is legit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, I think Schools are those uh, institutions of acculturation. Um, And again, I think based on the socioeconomic status of a particular community is reflective of that. And so by and large, schools will track you into particular places. And um, 
I think that's where there's this pushback against standardized testing, not just from inner city public schools, but from suburban schools as well. Because more and more suburban school districts are, and the teachers in particular recognizing that this isn't good for our students. Mm-hmm. We're teaching to a test, but this does not allow them the free critical thinking that they would otherwise, they have been getting over the years, and it won't allow them to compete uh, with their peers in other places. So. I question the, I, the mission of it. So it's like if you're creating good soldiers, then you don't want thinkers because, in essence, a good soldier is not necessarily a thinker. They're mm-hmm. a rural follower. Mm-hmm. They're an mm-hmm. executor. I think and there's the, something to that, too. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think I, I, the basis of that, I think, is huge, and I think that's how they pacify the populace. And then I think that a portion of that also in, in creating good soldiers, you're also saying that I don't want what I don't want in the society. And mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I think that's increasingly becoming the, the, the ethos in terms of dealing with any number of social issues. Um, but I mean, this has just come out of like the, of the conference they had overseas. I'm forgetting the name of it, but Davos. Um, I mean, the beauty of that, I'm glad his, a historian went over there and just like shook things up. Um, but he raised an important point that it's not enough for corporate responsibility. And I think they have to be willing partners, right? Uh, one of the beautiful things in the city of Newark is that Prudential has been there since um, the 1880s. I mean, Prudential started in Newark and it is a responsible citizen in that they help fund any number of projects in the city of Newark. Um, Newark 350, is safe to say, um, was uh, one of the major sponsors for the 350th was Prudential. Um, PSCNG, the same thing. Um, you know, it's incumbent upon corporations to do their diligence to local communities, and I think that's important. Yeah. Um, without that, um, especially since they make use of all city services, I mean... Not enough is said about security and policing and fire and all of those things that allow commuters to go into a corporate entity and then go home. You know, um, all of those, they, they take care of the down, they, cities invariably provide services for the downtown areas where these places are located. They need to make sure that they assist the larger community uh, in their endeavors to be more whole. And um, I think it's necessary, but it can't be everything. Um, when all is said and done, I think this is where state and federal government also has a responsibility in shaping policy to ensure that cities are taken care of. So I have another education-specific question for you. Do you think that more inclusion of black history into U.S. history would have a greater impact uh, or do you think it would be more impact down the road for everybody, uh, for black people to have this knowledge, or black kids to have this knowledge, or for white kids to have this knowledge? Where to start? Um, <laughs> I think for, for people of color, I think we got to know who we are mm. uh, in a much more critical and all-embracing embra- all way. I mean, I think this is where the diaspora is so important. Uh, this is where people like Paul Robeson um, is is such an important person in my life, just in terms of his vision of the world, right? Um, and, and and embracing the fullness of blackness all over the world, um, and that's something that we as black people have to do. Um, and <laughs> I'm reminded of my childhood, right, and the ways in which we would, you know, get at each other from time to time, and it was always steeped in something that 
just made us look bad. And so if you think of the movie uh, Boys in the Hood, how do you insult somebody? Call him an African booty scratcher, right? Um, you know, Haitians were looked down, down upon when I was in grade school, and so invariably there would be some kind of Haitian joke. Um, and so just on that level, like, I think we need to kind of do some reevaluation and learning so we have a better appreciation for who we are and all of our peoples all around the world so we don't fall into those kinds of things that, um, you know, make us look bad and are just part of white supremacy, right? I think we need to do a better job of that. Um, I think we also need to, I think, have the tools to do that. Uh, one thing I'm reminded of, uh, the scholar Sterling Stuckey, he passed away last year, the year before, tremendous thinker. And he had this book called Slave Culture, in which he talked about this thing called the ring shout. Uh, Stuckey's question was, how did African-Americans, people who came from all parts of Africa, speaking different languages, having different visions of the world, how did they create this one culture in this place that was oppressive, you know, sought to strip them of that culture? How did they create this new thing? And he said that they, they had the ring shout. Invariably, in various parts of Africa, there were these traditions that were, while not exactly the same, were similar enough and that when they met each other in the coffles going to the coast, when they were in the bottom of the ship or when they were on the auction blocks in the markets or even when they were in the fields or even in the, the, the slave pens, they were able to reference similar things that allowed them to create a unique or a, a similar language that they all can speak and engage in practices that were very similar. And while, and while some people say, well, Christianity is the, the religion of the oppressor and is used to oppress black people, well, no, black folks just took that and put it on something that they already had. Um, if you look at the history, uh, look at a guy, Olado Equiano, who was, uh, who was born in Benin, who was an Igbo uh, back in the 1750s. And uh, in his autobiography, he talks about what it was like living in Africa. And he talks about how similar it was to Christianity and Judaism in terms of their practices. He didn't say they were the same, but he said they were very similar. Um, and that as he moved from region to region going to the coast, because he, he was kidnapped and, and sold into slavery, he kept, he kept encountering people who spoke a similar language to his and referenced gods and things that were very similar to his. And so there was this uniqueness about blackness. Even though it all wasn't the same, there were these things that were, there was this thread that he was able to tap into. And even when he got to the Caribbean, people were kind of referencing the same things. And so when we hear people say, oh, they stripped us of our culture, we had nothing. No, we had a whole lot. And we took Christianity and made it our own. It wasn't foisted upon us. We had to keep in mind that slave masters weren't trying to give us Christianity. And with the Second uh, Great Awakening, which was this new religious revival, some decided to, yeah, we should preach Christianity to them. But black folks took that. There was agency there. We weren't these hapless victims. No, we took it and put it on the skeleton of what we had from the motherland and made it our own. And you see this in the United States. You see this in the Caribbean. Hell, you see this in South America. Right? The, the call and response. You listen to Sauce and, and Merengue, this call and response the same as you hear in gospel music. And so I think as, as people, as a people, we have to have a critical reevaluation of who we are mm -hmm. 
and to have a deeper understanding of what unites us and what makes us the same. Um, <laughs> I think so much of it gets kind of reduced to barbershop and beauty shop talk that we create these very easy, these paradigms that are always conflictual, but we don't look enough at what unifies us and allows us to understand that we all have been you know, victimized by white supremacy, uh, but somehow or another we persevered through it all and maintained a sense of self. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something you show sure something going here in the classroom, <laughs> unless, you have, <laughs> unless you have teachers like all of us around this table yeah. here. Um, you know, we have to do an evaluation of who we are. And then um, I think we can, you know, try to educate white folks. But as part of that's something that they have to work out for themselves, too. I think they'll look in. Like if, exactly. if, if you if you take care of it's not like white folks are educating us about their whiteness. No white girl has ever walked up to me and said, listen, this is how you're going to braid my hair. My hair is thin and it's fine and it's oily and it's whatever. It's just that is my education. That is what I am aware of. That is what I see. That is what I see held as something fine and good and clean and okay and normal. And so therefore, I want to educate myself on what's normal. I want to educate my children on what's normal. And in that, I adapt whiteness because that's what's normal. And I think what's important for us, and when you were talking about, you know, Christianity, if, if, if we forget all of these little things and we remember that Ra and Horace and all these guys are the same stories that are Jesus mm -hmm. and the same stories that go into Islam and so on, if, if we recognize that the history had context, right? And then we recognize that everybody said something from some sort, there, there's disingenuous messages that are making you try to do something. And then there's the real truth. And then all you have to do is sit there and think for yourself. I think we're kind of in a better situation with all of that because, yeah. Let me add to that though. I think we also have to, we, I think the collective humanity have to question whiteness even. Cause I don't think we, we were starting to do that a little bit more, but we don't do it enough. Yeah. Because again, I think there's just this general understanding that white people will be white people and that's it. But the history doesn't show that. That's actually interesting too, because as an educator, you probably have a lot of white people in your classroom and you have to be very careful how you approach race and class and supremacy, because it always comes back to white if you're going to talk about class mm -hmm. and not offend them and them not be so angry that they wake, walk out and say, that's a race card or there's nothing positive or forward or to where white people are scared, where they feel like the future of what we're trying to cultivate doesn't include them in mm -hmm. some capacity. Mm -hmm. So they think they're all going to be killed off or something, where we're just asking for a more inclusive history and a more inclusive present and more inclusive future. They think we want to obliterate them and wipe them out. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I do, especially when I'm looking at medieval Europe, I remind them is that the king or the lord that oppressed you know, the serfs, you know, that, you know, use the prima nocte to have influence and to use the women in his in his kingdom was a white man taking advantage of another white man. Mm. Um, you know, indentured servants, you know, while they had a limited term, they were still treated horribly when they came to the Americas. Mm. Uh, one of this example somebody used in a class I took years ago, uh, he said, just close your eyes and imagine that you're in the bottom of the ship 
and you're being tossed to and fro. You smell vomit and feces and urine and, and people are just crying out and you don't know when you're going to disembark. You just know that you've been thrown in the bottom of the ship and you're holding on to your family and you're just wishing for it to end. Now, who are these people? Everybody else says, slaves, black folks. Like, no, Irish immigrants. What? Family. Variably, black folks were separated from their loved ones. There was no families, but uh, indentured service and white folks in particular could mi uh, migrate with their families. That is the difference. The conditions were the same, but the husband and wife or the husband and his, or the father and the son could travel together and they would have to endure some of the same kinds of treatment. Not the exact thing. They may not have been whipped the way slaves were, but they were still conditionally dealing with the same thing. So... To me, I, I always question, it's just like, what, what was that difference between the Irish immigrant and the black immigrant, uh, the black slave and the Irish indentured servant, mm -hmm. is what, that, that hardship that was put on that, that, that slave, was it to destroy that? To do, am I trying to teach a white man to see me, or am I trying to stop a white man from trying to destroy my legacy? I think a perfect example is a guy about like Anthony Johnson. Mm -hmm. He was uh, brought, he was imported to the America as a slave, as a chattel. Um, he worked alongside white indentured servants and eventually he was able to own land and own his own plantation and own slaves. What we see though, he loses his foothold as the rules change in colonial Virginia, uh, especially when white indentured servants and black indentured servants, slaves, begin to unify and push for more rights, right? Um, this, this is, uh, the, the penultimate example is Bacon's Rebellion, where you have these white indentures and black folks basically rebelling and destroying everything because they don't have access to land and they don't get all the things that they need like the uh, company owners have. And so you have this class warfare, essentially, and you during that time also you have a systematic change in the rules that govern race. And so uh, a child will follow the condition of the mother, implying that if the child is a slave, the child will be a slave. Where the child is a born to a free white woman, the child will be free. Um, and all of the various rules that govern black people, they begin to change over the course of the 17th century to the point where we get slavery as we know it today. Um, you know, was so basically, they picked one. They picked one of the poor people. <laughs> Indeed, and, yeah. and and the circumstances dictated this was a group of people who could be distinguished mm -hmm. based on race. Um, they were already in a compromised position, and so in one way, it elevated whites over blacks. Um, even though, for all intents and purposes, their conditions were the same, it elevated one over the other, um, and so. I mean, one of the questions my students ask me when they talk about slavery, uh, the history of slavery, well, didn't the Romans have slaves? Well, slavery's existed forever, right? Like, yeah, but it's a little different. It's not racial slavery as we have it now, right? You can be a, you know, it wasn't predicated on one particular group. Anybody can be a slave in the Roman Empire, right? Hell, you can be a Roman citizen and lose that citizenship based on a whole host of things. In the U.S. context, though, no. Yeah. was based on one's race, and it, it changes. It's not immediate, and it's, it's a gradual process. Uh, one thing that people forget, on the West, uh, there were African Creoles, people that were, you know, have uh, parentage of both Africa and Europe. 
spoke multiple languages, could go into the interior of Africa, could negotiate with the the chiefs there, the kings there, um, but also could speak the language of the traders. And they moved in between both worlds, and they had a whole lot of power. Some of them became slave owners themselves. Some of them worked on ships, on slave ships. I mean, they, 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 and these were people of color. These were black folks. But they begin to lose their rank, their power, as America and the Americas become slave societies where slavery is at the central part of the economy. This is the work of uh, Ira Berlin, God Bless the Dead. I mean, great scholar who really gets at this idea that race is created with class in the 16th going into the I'm sorry, the 1600s going into the 1700s. This idea of race and racism is not forever. Race is a construct created by class. It's Mm -hmm. a modern idea Mm -hmm. that accompanies slavery. I mean, it's a great campaign for capitalism, right? Exactly. It is a great campaign for capitalism. It kind of brings me to my last question. I almost feel like you kind of answered it, but um, I was one of my one of my big questions I was going to ask you was like. yeah, for me, it wasn't so much the term racism, but colorism. Is that more of an American thing or did that really? Because I hear a lot of people debate like colorism is something that is a uniquely American thing that, and versus some people try to argue that, no, well, it happened um, before. But the way I kind of see it, I'm just like anybody could be of any color could be enslaved by anybody before, you know, the creation of America uh, and vice versa. And anybody can be enslaved, too. So. So, but but I and I hear debates. I hear debates about it. But I'm kind of curious to get your take on that because hmm. I do believe there's something unique about the American quote unquote version of. of I so want you to talk about this, and then I'm going to talk about my African perspective of colorism. Hmm. Go ahead. That's so good. There are a few things I have to add to this soup. I'll, I'll look at it as a soup, and you just add in the ingredients to kind of get to a better taste of it, to better hmm. understand like the flavor of colorism. Hmm. Um. I'm reminded of hierarchy in colonial, in Spanish colonies, in the Spanish colonies, Mm -hmm. in that you have Spanish Creoles who were the children of of Spanish people born here in the Americas. You have mestizos who were somewhat lighter uh, or, or, you know, not dark skinned, you know, you know, mixture of the the European and the indigenous people. Um, You would also have, say, the indigenous people and Africans uh, procreating and creating another class of people. I'm forgetting the title or the, the title used for them. And then you have the Negro, which was the the black folks. Uh, sorry, the mulatto, who was the European uh, and the Africans, mm-hmm. the Africans who would procreate. Yeah. And therein you had a color hierarchy as well. Mm-hmm. And individuals received privileges based on those color gradations. And this is going back 15, uh, 16th century, so mm-hmm. 1500s. Um, in the U.S., I, I I think that's just it's an aspect of it's an offshoot of white supremacy and and slavery and the institution of slavery um, that we we see you know with the importation of Africans when you have a particular economic system that's predicated on exp- the the taking out of resources and you need labor. Mm. I mean, I think that's the thing we have to keep at the core of this. Slavery wasn't just this. I hate Negroes. I hate. Arawak, no, we need labor. It's about money. Money. Yeah. And we don't have the manpower ourselves to get this resource. And so we need this group of people to do this work. Expertise. I like to change manpower to expertise. Expertise. They, that's not what they needed. 
The manpower, you can get anybody to run out and run into a field and do whatever. You needed folks that knew how to farm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My father was a botanist. He was flown all over the world to teach people how to farm crops that people couldn't forget how people in Africa were doing it in the 40s, 30s and the 40s even. Expertise. Tobacco farmers, South Carolina, rice. they got those guys because they rice, tobacco, all of that. They, they knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. They got smart guys. It wasn't necessarily just big guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, not too genetically amazing, but like, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> to be to be sure, both. Yes. Right? yes. In order to have the entire mm -hmm. system run, and so you essentially had the creation of a particular class based on color. Um, in places like uh, Colombia, South America, Venezuela, where you have to create uh, an administrative, you you have to create some kind of administration. You have to run some kind of government, especially in the aftermath, you know, when when, when Spain is no longer the dominant force in, in there anymore, and especially when you move towards independence, you have to have some kind of administration. Invariably, that administration is still tied to the mother country. And I think in a lot of ways, that's where certain color privilege comes into play. Uh, whereas the lighter one is, the more likely one is going to be an owner of a of a hacienda than the person that is working on the hacienda. Mm -hmm. um, the lighter one is, the more likely you're going to be in circles where you can uh, sell your goods and market rather than be the, you can send somebody to sell those goods rather than be the actual person in the market selling the goods. Um, and invariably the people that are shaping the policy and the rules that govern as well. Um, I, th I think that's my take on it. Okay. Yeah. I think the... Um purposeful erasure and then rewriting of history like take it on them upon them like forget about like what they've imparted onto Africa and their Christian missionaries and so on um, the King James version of the Bible for example that is a masterful work of propaganda I'm going to take this word that everybody believes in that ultimately is based in good humanity, how to treat each other, a code of laws that would make humanity work, how to be charitable and so on, and rewrite it in a way that these people are going to think me, King James, is God. And I think that that depiction of God, the recreation of what God looks like, um, becomes the image that you try to attain. Right. So we say, you know, cleanliness is godliness um, in the image of God, work in the image of God. And if they continuously show you this image of God that is, you know, of clear skin, light eyes, straight hair, and you don't look like this image of God, then the darker you are, the further you are from that ideal image. And that propaganda was used to take over country after country after country. I mean, Africa was colonized by missionaries, not by soldiers. So, yeah, I, I, I do think it's a purposeful, like, this is what it looks like. This is what you got to look like. But, mm, that's my take. It even comes down to, I think, the cultivation of knowledge. Um, if you think about, uh, this is the work of Edward Said, and that with the formulation of universities, you knew you had the development of the Occidental and the Oriental. And so invariably anything that was part of the Middle East was something exotic and different. Mm -hmm. And that comes with a particular value. And so it becomes interesting, especially in colonialism, as um, indigenous people are becoming part of the system, able to move to the middle class and become educated. Where they're learning, they're going to university. And where they're going to university, 
to London, somewhere in France. Boston. Boston. And what are they learning? They're not learning how to value themselves. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the most peculiar things. Um, Alado Okeano says this. He says that the English language is very copious in comparison to his, his indigenous language. And I think about that a little bit. A lot more words. A lot more words. Now, why? Is that because it's more complex and more intelligent? No. Probably might be just the, the, the role of the conquerors. You're bringing yes, in new things and you're learning different things. You're adding more. There's a certain power in that. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, you're, you're defining things. And maybe you're defining it not in a way that's important to the people. You're redefining it in ways that undervalues them, you know. And so it's, it's easy to say the dark continent of Africa. Me and a friend, we're just laughing about this. Bush Gardens in Florida used to, the theme park was called the Dark Continent. Was it really? Yes. That was wow. part of their whole advertising campaign. <laughs> and this was in the 80s. Think about that. And so this plays on people's mind. And so I, yeah, okay, African booty scratcher. Okay, Dark Continent. Makes sense. You know how many times I've been called an African booty scratcher in my life? So many times. It's one of the most appalling things when you think about what led to the underdevelopment of Africa. And you got to read Walter Rodney about this. I mean, he brings the fire. I mean, colonialism was a mother. Yeah. And not only did it exploit the resources, but it undermined people's or undervalued people's view of themselves. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the state of Africa currently is a result of colonialism. I, I had a, a very one of those embarrassing breakdowns amongst the others. I was at a dinner party with all of them. And, you know, you're supposed to stay cool and stay calm. And, like, people just kept picking at me. And I got the, where would Africa be without colonialism? And I did the, like, the Teresa Judice Real Housewives in New Jersey, like, mm -hmm. table flip. I was like, I can't be <laughs> And, like, had my whole, like, meltdown, breakdown. And afterwards, I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to handle shit like that. But honestly, it's, that's what's in their brains. It's like we, it's like that whole, what is that? Not manifest destiny. It was a, um, what's that thing? It's a burden. Um, oh, white man's burden. White man's burden. Yeah, because that's a, that's a that's a crazy question. That's a crazy, crazy question to be like, where would Africa be without colonialism? Where would the world be without Africa? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's the, that's the yeah, real you're question. Say, you're, you're saying like, how would we we power the bunny without the fucking battery? It's just like, this is the battery. This is the cell. You came here for libraries. I mean, like, we didn't even touch on this, but like most libraries on the planet mm -hmm. have not been destroyed by natural disaster, fire, flood, mildew, none of that. That's what we're concerned about when we build them. It's exponential. They've been destroyed by man. That's the first thing you take out. And they always talk, oh, the libraries of Alexandria, like Africa had one library. No, they took out Tripoli. They took out Cairo. They took out Khartoum. They took out Dakar. There's so many layers to all of this to like, that's, that's what the key is. It's the knowledge. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed this double episode as much as we did. Huge thank you to our dope guest, Dr. John Johnson. We encourage you to continue the conversation at home and with all of us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Brown CEO. All the links you need are available at thebrownceo.com. Thank you to our episode sponsor, The Brown Crayon Project, and our family at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio.